welcome to the latest episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Jankowski, and today I'm very excited to be speaking with Emmalyn Shaw. Emmalyn has 20 years of technology investing experience working closely with entrepreneurs to build large-scale businesses. She currently co-manages Flourish, a $500 million global venture fund focused on fintech investments that advance financial health and economic resilience. Prior to this, Emmalyn was a partner at Amidia Networks and at Oak Investment Partners. Notably, she is a Wharton MBA grad. We're very excited to feature another Wharton MBA breaking new ground in fintech. Emmalyn, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So could you start by telling us about your background? Sure. So my parents are first-generation immigrants, and they moved to the U.S. for graduate school. And my mom, jokingly, but actually quite seriously, would have been a nun had she not married my dad. So as a result, this whole notion of giving back and a sense of service has always been pretty well ingrained from early in the early age. And then my dad on the other side uh, actually ran family um, development banks. And so pretty early on, I got to see the power of financial institutions and how they could meaningfully impact, particularly in this case, small and medium businesses. So that's kind of been the, the grounding for me. I grew up in Huntington Beach, Southern California. And I have been fortunate to work with and be surrounded by technology uh, for the last 25 years. I'm curious, can you tell us a bit more about how your career has evolved over the last 25 years? You said you'd worked quite a bit in technology. Where did you start and how has that led you to where you are today? Yeah, uh, I actually started in undergrad. I, I went to Cal, uh, Berkeley, and there I wanted to work full time so I could be independent, pay for expenses. I was on an um, academic scholarship, but um, and in doing so, found technology as a way of doing that. So first worked at Apple, um, and then actually worked full-time as a product manager for two of my four years at Cal for a uh, portfolio analytics uh, company, a fintech company called Bara, that ultimately got purchased by Morgan Stanley. And so I did that and really fell in love with technology and how and, and finance as a whole. And when I graduated from Cal, fortunately did quite well and was able to got recruited to work at Morgan Stanley uh, in the tech group out here in Silicon Valley, and that was in the 90s. And so I kind of got a front row seat to everything, all the different innovations, including the dot-com and the eyeball business models, et cetera, and subsequently the dot-bomb. So in that, I was able to work on the Netscape AOL merger and was recruited by Jim Barksdale, then the CEO of Netscape, and Peter Curry, CFO of Netscape, to launch a new fund called the Barksdale Group, which is a $200 million early-stage fund. Half of that money was Jim Barksdale's, and the other half were um, strategic LPs, most of whom were from other uh, early-stage venture firms, Kleiner, Sequoia, Benchmark, and the like. And so we did a lot of early-stage investing. That was my first experience into working with entrepreneurs, going from kind of the banking side to the really hands-on um, investing side of the house. Uh, since then, I've been part of a couple of funds, some of which are early, some of which are growth-stage, billion-plus-dollar funds. And everything from early stage investing all the way to, again, kind of growth, larger deployment scale investing. And through that, I've been fortunate to work with a number of incredible CEOs and fortunate great successes, as well as some amazing funds. Before my current platform, actually, I've spent almost over eight years at Oak Investment Partners and really kind of learning and appreciating the value of both early stage investing and growth in across internet software and new media and actually even um, financial services, uh, where they've um, built quite a reputation. In that, somewhere along the line, while I loved what I did, and it really still, you know, the essence of working with an entrepreneur and seeing the technology innovation and making great commercial bets, 
I felt like there's something missing that I wanted to add, and that was something impactful. And it's not to say that the investments we made weren't impactful. They could be, but it certainly wasn't a priority. I mean, it wasn't a criteria. And I wanted to shift that prioritization. Uh, so I looked around and found what is the leader and, and kind of the, the, the creator, so to speak, of, of, of investing of this type. And that's uh, Pierre Amidiar and Amidiar Network. And they coined, at least at the time, was called Impact Investing. Um, that means a lot to a lot of folks. But for me, what I was looking for was a way to invest commercial dollars very much in a venture fund mentality, but with additional structure around some criteria around impact. And against that, I was able to join now Flourish Ventures, but then we spun out of a Midiar network, the financial services group. And our group is used, was really looking at how to take, again, commercial equity investments, looking at uh, financial technologies. But where it became in fact impactful was it actually had to advance financial health and economic resilience. So it had to be some technology that somehow boosted the financial resilience of the end consumer, either directly through their interventions or indirectly as an infrastructure layer that unlocked more innovation. So I got very, very excited about that opportunity and joined about two years ago. And then we formally spun off and launched Flourish last March. And so I've been thrilled to kind of really have all my passion of technology and innovation, entrepreneurship and impact um, all in one. And unfortunately, to have a platform to, to drive along those dimensions. Yeah, super interesting background. Great to know that you were part of fintech before fintech became an official popular turn of phrase. And interesting that you've been able to, to watch the evolution over the years. So at Flourish, you spoke a little bit to the, uh, the mandate here around using commercial equity to advance the financial health of consumers. Can you tell us a bit more about the fund's remit in terms of what stage of companies do you invest in? Are there particular areas of fintech that you focus more on? Any particular geographies? Absolutely. So um, just for context, we're a $500 million global fund. Uh, half our capital is deployed here in the U.S. and the other half is in emerging markets with a focus on India, Africa, Latin America, and other parts of Southeast Asia. We are, given our size and also given our focus, uh, we are an early stage fund. We tend to do seed A, we will do opportunistic Bs, but they have to very clearly align with our mission and our impact. We're very hands-on. We're very focused on trying to be ideally the first call to an investor. And given the fact that we have a single LP being Pierre and Pamela Miniar, we're very fortunate to have their both vision and dedication to this fund. Uh, we have the ability to be a little bit more flexible vis-a-vis traditional venture funds. So we don't end up requiring a certain amount of ownership, which I certainly know from prior funds that I've been part of, um, or certain capital deployed. We're able to be a little bit more flexible to allow for the right syndicate for the, for the company and the right level of funding. In terms of sector. I mean, obviously, we are, it's very rare to have a fintech-focused fund. The way we look at opportunities, as I said, at the highest level is looking at how, whether this technology somehow advances financial health and economic resilience. So if you think about, at least at the consumer level for a moment, what does it mean? Well, savings, in some regard, allows for more financial resilience, the ability to actually save additional funds. And the only way to really do that is either shifting a number of the dimensions of that calculus. So it's income, and income can mean a lot of things, but can be what you generate from by work. It could be through benefits of some type, through government benefits, et cetera, but inflows, and then the outflows. And the outflows, some of which are fixed, right? And some of the most important fixed expenses for a consumer, particularly Americans, 
is really, you know, education, healthcare, housing, all of which have just grown 200 plus percent, while unfortunately, income has stayed relatively stagnant over the last 15 to 20 years. So you're finding that equation being very difficult. And then on top of that, there's a whole host of other additional expenses that one incurs, some of which are discretionary and others that are fees and other things associated with trying to maybe manage debt and debt loads, et cetera. So there's much more complexity in that kind of financial calculus for, for an American. And, and just for to frame it, particularly in the U.S., there's 70% of the U.S. Americans who live paycheck to paycheck for whom, you know, $500 of of some type of emergency need does not exist. And so this is a really mass market problem. And so how do you think about technology interventions that allow you to either augment income, increase income in some capacity, allow them to actually manage their debt load, think about how to balance the trade-offs they make, especially if they're living paycheck to paycheck. You know, how do you think about accessing credit differently, more cheaply? Uh, how do you think about ways to optimize uh, for kind of the fixed expenses that you have today? And those are kind of more of the direct interventions, so to speak. Uh, and then there's the kind of indirect uh, interventions as well, all the technology that helps, that, that actually once we are infused within the financial systems can help unlock a lot more technology innovation that ultimately will allow for lower prices to the end consumer, et cetera. So there's also both direct and indirect. And against those uh, larger parameters, we evaluate a number of companies um, as to whether or not it makes sense to invest. That's really helpful. Thank you for sharing that. Very interesting data points on the consumer, U.S. consumer's health, and would like to come back to that and pick your mind on that. But to, to help bring this mission that you've articulated to life a little bit, could you share a few of the portfolio companies that you've invested in to date and what you're excited about, what they're doing? Absolutely. I mean, at a macro level, so some sectors that we have actively covered that can give you a sense of kind of what areas fall under kind of financial health. Um, Challenger Banks is one you probably are all too familiar with, and it's certainly become a global phenomenon. And we were fortunate really early to see this, and again, this is the benefit of being a global fund, to see this as being kind of an inevitable shift, right? There's bundling and rebundling and an opportunity to think about what role traditional incumbents play in um, the financial ecosystem and in what way can technology innovators come in and actually serve as that mobile front end and maybe rent you know, the bank charter and partner with a processor to enable actually no fee banking experiences, right? Deposit taking experiences, which is pretty powerful. And, and that shift came on pretty early originally in the UK and then quickly started to um, expand globally. And we were fortunate to see that make some bets. We've actually have eight challenger bank investments across the world um, in the US, Chime and Aspiration, Chime being of the leader right now and been really fortunate to kind of see that evolution, but in particular, seeing the need, validating the need for consumers to be able to have a banking service that doesn't gouge you at every fee, in every fee, whether that's ATM, whether that's overdraft, et cetera, really allows and it has a business model that's very much aligned with the consumer. So it's only when the consumer chooses to use that product through interchange fee that time gets paid. So there's no other kind of false incentive, so to speak. Um, and it really allows for the consumer to have the best financial um, experience with a bank that's you know, available at all times, given the mobile nature of it. And that I think has been at that thesis, quite frankly, proven out globally. Well, be somewhat different depending on regulatory constraints and business model opportunities, but very much that need has been validated on a global level. Emily's done um, consumer and SME lending. I would say that's probably more pronounced on the emerging market side. We have done a little bit here in the U.S. as well. 
and they've been very particular about making sure that we are thoughtful about APR and what's appropriate for consumers. We want to stay away from the predatory nature of it. And it's really for kind of the in-time um, immediate needs of the consumers. We've made some bets along those dimensions. And then on the kind of debt management side and personal finance side, I think that's been particularly powerful. And it's one that I think a lot of folks can really identify is around, you know, how do you manage your debt in the case of earn up or managing mortgages and they want to, again, these folks are living paycheck to paycheck. So be able to typically pay out a mortgage in one lump sum is very hard for folks. And so what they needed was actually some discipline around every time an income payment came in that they could actually reserve amount of cash put aside and then ultimately a company like Grant would pay the mortgage on their pass on time. That was pretty meaningful because late fees and the impact that can have there and the process of losing your home is pretty dire. So to have those kinds of really meaningful services, um, and then of course the earn-up side of the house is a partner with loan services as well as the consumers to really make sure it's a win-win on a on a business model side. So a good example of how that can happen. And so along those sides of you know, debt, you've got you've got mortgage, you have student loan debt, another company, Summer, we're part of, has been kind of really instrumental in particular now um, as we think about the lack of income coming in and looking for kind of income deferral repayment opportunities specifically for student loans. And they've been instrumental in trying to drive um, the adoption of that and for consumers because that is something that actually consumers can take advantage of. And it's a really meaningful shift relative to most folks' current economic status. So very excited about what they're doing there. Other companies around insure Texas space we've done a lot on. We've looked at distribution, and we've also looked at kind of as there is there different data that can be unlocked through insurance products that allow us to underwrite differently and hopefully pass that pricing benefit onto the consumer. Uh, and then finally, more on the infrastructure side, and we're going to start looking very heavily this year and on into much more um, deeper infrastructure innovation because I think that's very important, particularly right now as we start to see our own financial systems breaking, both at the federal level, but also kind of around the incumbent level and the legacy systems that are currently in place. But we've made some initial bets in reg tech, so around regulatory technology, around compliance, around anti-money laundering, uh, KYC. So how do you think about using that technology innovation uh, with AI and machine learning to really provide a compliance dashboard for financial services institutions and other companies that are trying to provide financial services to their consumers and making sure they have that functionality um, to provide on top of as, a, as an additive layer. So those are some of the bets that we've made at the macro level. I have to say particularly I'm excited because it's COVID's been a very difficult time for many. And, and I think it's it's been one that's created a lot of pause. When you make bets on financial health and economic resilience, a lot of those technologies and solutions are critical. And I would say in COVID, they're even more critical. And so the demand for these services have only gone up. And we're just pleased to have backed mission-based entrepreneurs that can provide these kinds of solutions. And beyond having demand, they're also providing innovation around COVID to be able to help them further. So maybe outside of their core business. And I'll give you a couple of examples. The first one's Propel. So they provide technology solutions uh, for food stamp recipients. And what they've done is, you know, in, in the traditional world, food stamp recipients would call in and they try to get their balance. And it's highly archaic. Quite frankly, unfortunately, very similar to what you're seeing with unemployment insurance today. And what they've done is they've taken, they've taken the technology partnered with that uh, provider to be able to provide them a very clear snapshot of where their balances are, what kind of discounts can they use, budgeting tools and apps specifically for this consumer base. Obviously, you can imagine in COVID, that membership base has only gone up at least another 2 million. So 
over 4 million food stamp recipients today actively using this product, relying very heavily on its solution, which is just demonstrates the need and the dire need for these consumers. What they've done is partnered, so out, totally outside of their business model, they've partnered with GiveDirectly, um, who's a donation giving platform globally and has helped in a number of relief efforts in the past. And we, along with Google and Google CEO, seed funded together a $3 million donation to be able to provide $1,000 financial assistance to specifically to these food stamp families. And as a result of that, they've been able, and, and kind of a call to action for venture firms and venture individuals and technologists and other family offices to think about coming to support this effort. And we're just so thrilled to announce that actually just recently they've hit their 100 million mark. And that's just incredibly meaningful in so many dimensions about to be able to give that kind of relief um, to those who clearly need it the most in such a difficult time. And, and our hope is to then help and partner with them around kind of testing what's the longitudinal, providing a longitudinal study around what's the benefit, how are they shifting, how has that helped meaningfully their, their financial health over time. So we're very excited to have been part of that and excited to see what Propel is doing. And then on the other side, you have folks like Chime who have you know, taken advantage of the fact that they've got a massive base of consumers. They're able to tell who has already had a you know, relationship with IRS and has been, had the benefit of getting a tax refund in the past. And so they have visibility in terms of who would be eligible for a stimulus. And knowing that there was a long delay, again, underscoring the kind of broken infrastructure that currently exists today in our financial institutions and ability to deploy capital, they were able to give up front some capital infusion to over 100,000 of their users, anywhere about $200 of kind of cash advance, um, and not as a loan or anything, but just to give them an advance knowing um, whoever will be eligible for these stimulus checks through what's called a spot me program. That's a couple of examples. I would say the final one, which again, I think hits home the hardest, uh, is a company called Steady. And in Steady, going into the equation I mentioned earlier about income and where if we can increase income, that's one of the most that's the most important lever in terms of providing buffer for savings, et cetera. And what they've done is created a portfolio of work for consumers. They've taken hourly opportunities across both gig and retail and the like and provided them by geo, by dollar, by hour opportunities for consumers. And this was the case pre-COVID where people were looking to either create a portfolio of work and or and oftentimes augment their pre-existing income. And so that was really important for folks living paycheck to paycheck. And they saw $300 incremental value of income generation lift as a result of their platform. And in light of COVID, you can imagine that has only like tenfold the experience in terms of the need for that type of service, where to optimize, what's, who's providing the best income, what sectors are hiring the most for companies, large retailers that are looking to downsize full-time work but provide hourly opportunities on a part-time, it becomes a platform of choice as well. And so it's really been meaningful to provide that kind of service for consumers. Uh, and they, too, have partnered with the Workers Lab, a nonprofit who's provided, again, some funding for them to provide emergency cash grants as well, totally independent of their current kind of operational focus. And so they've been able to help their consumers in a meaningful way. So just a couple of examples of how what they're doing today while they're excited, but also as importantly, how they're showing up at a time of COVID for their, for their customers. Yeah, that's super helpful and a really impressive set of companies that's making a real impact, especially during these difficult times. So kudos to you and the Flourish team for putting together a portfolio that really lives up to the mission that you had articulated. 
To follow up on the point you mentioned around infrastructure, could you talk a little bit more about the different opportunities that you see in that space? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's pretty clear that as fintechs emerge and this idea of what, what does embedded finance mean in the United States, and it means something very differently in emerging markets, but in the U.S., it's really this concept, as, as we've heard, that every type of application, as a result of getting closer with their end consumer, will want to in, provide some sort of financial service. And I think against that dimension, there are a couple of companies that have surfaced I would say find the first generation that are trying to provide at least the base level, in this case, banking as a service. But over time, there'll be many more kind of, you know, lending as a service and the like, all, all these enablement um, technologies. The second generation, in my mind, is going to be really critical. And it's, and obviously, it's not for every application, but there's some applications for which financial services is going to be a really important part of what becomes their product extension and their retention, et cetera. And I, I think against that, that's an area we're very much looking at. I would say as well, our core, Jack Henry's and Fiserv's of the world, I mean, these incumbents have been relying very heavily on such a critical part for legacy players for quite some time. And it's not to say that they haven't done a great job trying to innovate themselves and trying to add some flexibility and add wrappers to provide enabling APIs, but it's a pretty old stack. And it's very clear as we think about moving to the cloud and this notion of remote, there's a number of opportunities that surface around is there a new processor? Like, and what does that even look like? And what is it going to take to adopt that? And maybe that happens more at the community bank level first, and ultimately over time it happens in the incumbent level, but, but it's just a matter of time, and I think it's one of necessity. And then finally, I think as you think about moving to the cloud, you think about being more remote, there's all of a sudden security and data becomes really critical. Um, both in terms of making sure that data remains safe as we move another you know, off-prem and the like, but as importantly, kind of agency of data. You know, what role does data have? What role do we as consumers play in, in owning our data, right? We've got open banking in the UK, and that's been widely adopted. We kind of have our plaid equivalent here in the US, although that was, you know, it's, it's, it's not quite as elegant as maybe um, what you've seen kind of on a more global scale. And so how do you think about what that looks like long-term and our ability to actually control that? and have more agency around that. So there's a number of different plays that we think are particularly exciting against, uh, against the infrastructure revolution. So some of the difficulties that you mentioned around COVID and its impact on consumers really highlights some of the challenges with financial health in the US that you spoke to a little bit earlier around just the fact that majority of consumers live paycheck to paycheck. The Fed has done some studies in the last few years that show just how few consumers can cover emergency expenses if they were to come up. I'm curious, why does this exist today in, in a country like the U.S.? Why is the average consumer health of, of the U.S. consumer so challenged? Yeah, I mean, I think, as I said before, to some extent, we really have seen that cons the base level consumer equation just shift. Um, so in, in some parts, truly income just has remained relatively stagnant. And these fixed expenses that are essential to live, whether they're education and healthcare and housing and the like, have really gone up in such a disproportionate way that that, that, that calculus is just very hard. It's very untenable. So I think that's one for sure. And I think you then exacerbate this idea that we as a culture have never really embraced savings and the concept of savings in any material way. And then the access to credit and very predatory credit is also, you, you can kind of confound those and, and it becomes very difficult for consumers to navigate. 
this is why it's very much a middle class problem. It's not that their income levels are such that they can't afford it's that they might be overextended, right? And so part of this, and it has to be more than financial literacy, because I think financial literacy is, is key and it's critical, and it's one that needs to be infused much earlier as kind of our generation of Americans come up and understand the benefit of it. But that has to come with tools and very accessible, intuitive tools. I think as the culture as well, financial, are discussing finance in any meaningful way, but somewhat of a taboo. People are a little bit, you know, they're, they're shy or embarrassed or um, don't feel confident. And so again, making sure we can have those, um, the information accessible and playful. And again, starting early <laughs> in terms of the developmental training is going to be very important. And so all of these interventions kind of together are meaningful. I think on its own, on a standalone, harder to digest. But as we as we put in the, you know, the tools, the budgeting, uh, best practices, affordability, quite frankly, because in a lot of cases, this exists to some extent, but it exists for a kind of a more affluent group. The question is, can we provide some of these rich services and education to a to a lower income group and make it just as accessible to them? And I think that's really been the mandate and why so many of these platforms have been placed so much effort and dedication towards not just the solution, but also the education. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and underscores the importance of what a lot of the companies that you mentioned are doing. So we'd love to, to switch gears for a minute and ask you about uh, career advice. So you, you've worn a lot of hats over your career as an operator, as, as, a, as a banker, as an investor. What career advice would you have for somebody who's just starting their career in the fintech space? And this is somewhat, um, this is absolutely through observation, uh, and it seems to align very much with what we do. Um, so I'll give that caveat. But I do think picking something that you have particular deep passion for. You know, I think there's a lot of that aspects of financial services that are exciting. But at the end of the day, it has to be something that just drives so much passion and, and something mission-based. And I say that because I think when I look around at financial services companies, it is my strong belief that if you have part of a mission-based, generates the most talented individuals that you're going to learn from, such as up for the greatest success, has garnered a lot of interest from broad ventures. You've got the supply piece. It positions you well for a business model that's sustainable long term, and so I think number one again, picking something that you've got a lot of passion for, and two, something that's mission based. And then third, I would say, learn. Like don't don't stay pigeonholed. So for example, when I was in venture, um, I did early stage venture first, and I could have stayed there, but I knew that for me to be a good venture capitalist, a great venture capitalist, I actually had to understand what is what does venture capital mean? Because it's an arc. It's not just what you see at the beginning. It's making sure that they actually come, they, they experience some sort of success and, and growth either through and whether that's standalone or, you know, or being acquired by someone. And what does it actually mean to scale a business? And what are some of the ebbs and flows and challenges? And had I not actually pushed myself to join a, other firms where I deployed different I made different bets. I looked at companies differently. I looked at sectors a little differently. I don't think I would have the breadth and depth and muscle memory as an investor than I do today. But it would be very easy to stay in that one path for sure. So I think I just encourage you to kind of step outside of your areas of comfort and, and actually be willing to try. You know, Don't just stick to people say, oh, stick to marketing and go long on marketing. I would say actually, especially early on in the career, explore a couple of different segments so that you can really 
especially if you think you want to ultimately run something, you'll get a sense and appreciation for some of the other uh, departments and the role and, and how important they are to, in terms of their inner working. That's great advice. Thank you for sharing that. And one, one quick follow-up on that. Uh, given that you work with a lot of entrepreneurs, any advice you would have for someone who's looking to build a venture in the fintech space? And I recognize that a lot of what you just shared is super relevant to an entrepreneur, but I'm just curious if there's anything else that you would advise based on entrepreneurs that you work with or entrepreneurs who might be interested in working with Flourish. You know, I think the fintech ecosystem um, is incredibly vibrant. There are so many smart, passionate folks in the space. And if this is an area that you want to start building, I would, number one, call, pick up the phone, network, don't be afraid to cold call. It's actually a much smaller, tight-knit, and actually I think even a, a slightly more nurturing ecosystem. Because I, I think there's a little bit of a, a club that really wants to see people succeed. I think you know the general tech ecosystem, it's not harsh, it's just large. It's really hard to navigate. But I think within FinTech, it seems to be a much more nurturing ecosystem. And I would encourage you to take advantage of it at every level, senior folks, junior folks, and really think about kind of what spaces you're passionate about. I always joke that for me, and maybe this is kind of my, my venture orientation to some extent, but the, the problem has to be very palatable. And particularly in the FinTech, in my mind, the more palatable the problem, the better. The better. It doesn't mean that that's their only solution. You're not going to come in and that is a single problem and you're going to come in and your, your company is going to rest on that. No, but it has to be something that you're solving that is just so palatable that the, the ROI and benefit is unquestionable. And then you can diversify and provide the larger platform view if it's an infrastructure play or, or even a you know, financial services, personal finance management play or whatnot. But I think that entry point is, is critical. And where I've seen people make the mistake is, is thinking too big without really understanding what is the problem? What, what is the enterprise's need? What is the consumer's need today? What are they, and how are they solving it today? And what can we do fundamentally differently? And, and what about the technology innovation and the cheapness of the infrastructure that allows us to be really competitive at this stage? And I think it sounds pretty basic, but I'll tell you how it surprises me how many times people still fail to take that approach and where they end up, you know, circling and iterating on their, on their planet before they can see a way towards kind of growth and scale. That's great advice. Thank you for that. So, Ellen, before we let you go, we always like to end these interviews by asking you what you like to do for fun outside of work. So could you share a little bit about what you like to do when you're not in the office working with entrepreneurs? Yes. Well, as I think you know, I have a family of six children, uh, ranging between 26 and 10. Uh, and right now, uh, in COVID, actually, we've got my children plus two girlfriends of my older sons. So it's quite a full house. And on top of spending amazing one-on-one time with family, we do. I am a. I love hiking. I I did train growing up as an ice skater and then as a dancer. And so on my off time, I enjoy doing that as well. Although I seem to find less time for that. So I need to probably, that's one of my priorities. But in addition to family, it's really being outdoors and it's hiking and, and running. And I think really special and particularly now more than ever to, to relish those, those times. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Well, thanks everyone for joining us on the podcast. We really enjoyed the opportunity to, to speak with you and to hear from you. So uh, best of luck with Flourish and all the companies that you're working with. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Take care.